This is The 12 Songs of Christmas, and I'm Alex Rawls. Christmas music is one of my obsessions, and I'm glad you're here with me to share it. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I hope yours are going as well as 2020 will allow. I don't know about you, but the seasons have largely slipped by me this year because of social distancing kept me from being outside and hot and sweaty in the summer, and I've largely experienced the holiday season through music and the podcast because I'm just not out that much. So it goes, but I hope this time next year we can do Christmas in a way that feels a little more familiar. Today's episode is my Merry Christmas episode with a ton of interviews and news. First, the guests. I'm so happy today to have folk pianist and composer George Winston on the show. I also have Anara George of the indie pop duo The Bird and the Bee. Jamie Hilston, who brought us two punk Christmas EPs with The Murderers, Golden Frankincense and Myrrh, get it? And Matt Munoz of the Latin ska band Mento Buru. That's a lot, and it's possible because of my first piece of news today. When I launched 12 Songs in 2018, I wanted it to be a year-round podcast, but at the time it was hard to make it go that way, and I decided to make the show seasonal. This year, it was clear that more of you were listening, and as I worked on the season, it became easier to see how the show could continue into January and February. I've always thought of the show as being about how Christmas music fits into people's musical, personal, and professional lives, and it was never about the soundtrack to the season in my mind, so it always seemed possible to keep it going into warmer weather. Since I have future episodes, I could take some of the great last-minute interviews, including Winston and Lukather, use part of those interviews now, and save part of them for later. I'll have more with all of the guests on today's show, and more from last week's guests, Joey Burns of Calexico, Grant Lee Phillips, and Peggy uh, Lee's granddaughter, Holly Foster-Wells. I also have more from Stephen Droz to The Flaming Lips and a number of interviews that won't debut until next year. Writer Michelangelo Matos has a new book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. It's really good, and it should be on your Christmas wish list. And since 1984 was also the year of Wham's Last Christmas and Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas, we talked at length about those songs and how they fit into the story of 1984. That's coming up next month. I'm taking a break between Christmas and New Year to catch my breath, but I'll be back on the first Wednesday of January with more 12 songs. Second piece of news is my Christmas gift to you. I've compiled a lengthy Spotify playlist to be your Christmas radio station minus the ads. It currently clocks in at almost 15 hours, and it's deliberately not sequenced. I've dropped in a lot of classics and my own personal favorites, including Christmas music from James Brown, Booker T and the MGs, Phoebe Bridgers, J.D. McPherson, and a great Canadian, Stompin' Tom Connors. Set it on shuffle, and you should get a mix of songs you already know and love, and ones that keep the season from feeling like one long musical rerun. You can find a link to my playlist in the show notes and at the 12 Songs of Christmas Facebook page. Here's one of my favorites from this season. It's L.A.-based singer-songwriter Sarah Noel's apropos for 2020, Christmas at Sea.
on to the interviews. George Winston refers to what he does as folk piano, and his solo piano album, December, from 1982, has been certified triple platinum, which means it's sold a ton of records. Earlier this year, he released a version of Silent Night, with proceeds from the sales going to Feeding America, a nonprofit network of more than 400 food banks. I'd have wanted to talk to Winston about the song no matter what, but the fact that his version was influenced by New Orleans piano great Professor Longhair and musician Joseph Bird, who recorded a version of Silent Night that Winston used as his starting point in his 1975 album, A Christmas Yet to Come. Since that Bird album renders Christmas music on analog synths, I wasn't sure how and why it spoke to Winston. Here's part of that conversation. a version of Silent Night with sales of the track going to Feeding America. Tell me about the project. Well, I've been working with uh, food banks and Feeding America since 1986. At uh, concerts, we always uh, ask people to bring cans of food and invite a local food bank. And then the, the uh, food bank always gets the proceeds from all the merchandise, you know, the CDs. And um, so I, I uh, first heard Joseph Bird's Silent Night in, in uh, 1975, and I just loved it. And it's really Caribbean-influenced. And so eventually, after decades, I said, i got to try to play this. So I use a, a modified bass inspired by Professor Long here in the left hand, and then uh, some of the feeling that Joseph Bird had with the right hand, uh, right hand things, even though it turns out the tempo I do is uh, quite a bit different. You know, the uh, the rhythm is a bit different, but it's definitely inspired by uh, Joseph Bird's ver- great version. You can find it on YouTube. You got to look a little bit. It's Joseph Bird, B Y R D, as in Roy Bird, Professor right. Longhair. Yeah. No relation. No relation. Yeah, I have to say, I was surprised uh, to go to uh, Joseph Bird because, I mean, I know that record uh, as one of a as uh, as an album of like synthesize uh, that's analog synthesizers, and yeah, it's a multi-track synthesizers of the time, and I'm not a synthesizer guy at all, but. Um, I had a little bit of interest in listening back in the 70s, but his arrangements are just so great. Tell me what you liked about his arrangements. I have to admit, to be fair, 
I, I love that record, but I am so honed in on just the sound. I, I love Moogs. I love analog synths. And I was so drawn to the sound that I have to admit, I may never have actually really heard the musicality of his performances because that kind of uh, sound is so arresting to me and sort of so a part of a very specific moment. Yeah, I, he's a he's very multifaceted. He had a rock, great rock band in the late '60s called the United States of America, and then he later had a band called Joseph Bird and the Field Hippies. And then Joseph, uh, he's a modern composer too, but he also did three he did three albums for Tacoma Records, John Fah the late guitarist John Fahey's label. And that was also on in the early 70s, which is how I found out about the record. Okay. Joseph Bird also did kind of a bicentennial record with the synthesizers. And then later he did a record of 1800s choir music. But he's also had a, uh, I wasn't able to attend because I was working, but he had a, a modern classical concert featuring suites for 17 trombones in the 70s. So he's just so multifaceted. Oh, wow. You also mentioned Professor Longhair, and and, and, and you've mentioned uh, your that uh, Fess is an influence a number of times. What about his playing drew you in? Well, in 1977, I quit playing because I couldn't be Fats Waller. <laughs> not, not realizing that nobody else could either. I mean, uh, and then I heard Professor Longhair's recordings in 1979, and I started playing again. So I always tell people, James Booker is how I play the piano, basically. But Professor Longhair is why I play the piano. <laughs> and then Henry Butler enhance, enhances everything else. So it's basically those three are by far my biggest influences and inspirations for playing. And I'm still working on it. Of course, John Cleary, Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, Tom McDermott, Josh Paxton. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Tom Worrell. I'm sure you know all these great players. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, and so many great players in New Orleans. I know, I either know or know of all of them. From right. 1870 to... To now, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's really the only pianist I really listen to and study, or what you call the New Orleans school of playing, which has a gumbo of influences from Caribbean to jazz to all kinds of things. It's just a unique place on the planet <clears throat> for uh, everything but especially piano. I tell people in New Orleans is the center of the universe for piano, drums, clarinet, trumpet, trombone, and tuba. Right. <laughs> and yet it, it's a Caribbean island that's coincidentally attached to a continent. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> How do you make those two musical worlds coincide? Because... On one hand, like I listen to December, and there's so much space in that music, and 
so many sounds left hanging uh, beautifully. And at the same time, and then, you know, the New Orleans style is so much about sounds rolling on top of each other and about influences, you know, finding their way together in one, uh, you know, in two hands. Yeah, exactly. I think the, um, well, because of the, t- because of the actual region on earth where it comes from, the wide open spaces of eastern Montana, that's where the music comes from, not any music tradition, not any particular tradition. Whereas in New Orleans, now you're in an urban area with all kinds of things going on. Montana is only one thing going on, <laughs> eastern Montana in particular. And that's right. just the seasons and the uh, flatlands. Right. And uh, both extremely profound to me. Um, so really, you could say the folk piano is kind of winter and the New Orleans R&B piano is kind of summer. remember your first exposure to Professor Longhair? In nineteen seventy nine, I got from the I got from the library. I'd quit playing, so I had a lot more time to listen to things. And so I was at the library in Los Angeles. Um and I saw his New Orleans piano record, the one with the black cover on Atlantic from reissues of his 1949-1953 tracks. And I put that on and I said, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. I think I can do this. But it took me to, it took me 35 years till 2014 to really come to terms what to do with his music. And all New Orleans pianos go through that. It just takes me longer than anybody I know to do anything. So <laughs> it takes as long as it takes. And the thing with Professor Longer's music if I play it exactly like him, it doesn't sound right. And if I don't play it like him, it doesn't sound right either. So you just have to sort of wake up one day and go, oh, okay, I'm going to slow this down. I'll play a James Booker left hand, and I'm going to um, maybe change the key or change the tempo or something. So eventually uh, it comes. But and I realize that all New Orleans pianists go through that with him. You know, it's just so beautiful. You just, uh, you know, Alan, Alan Toussaint found his own way with it. Dr. John found his own way with it. Henry Butler found his own way with it. John Cleary did. James Booker did himself. Um, I mean, so, so much, so much inspiration. Um, 
from Fess, Professor Longhair, and James Booker, and Dr. John with so many pianists. Henry Butler, too, but Henry Butler is so difficult. It's Yes. Really, it took me 22 years to figure out what to do with his music. And that's to really <laughs> kind of enhance with certain ways. But I'm not really a Henry Butler player. I'm definitely a James Booker player. When I, James Booker's languages are the way I think of the piano. I, right. I heard him three years, his recordings three years after I heard Professor Longhair. I said, immediately, that's the way to play the piano. It took me like six years to really come to terms with it. Um, but his studying him gave me the means to play a lot of songs. You know, oh, okay, right. I'll use this James Booker bass, I'll use this James Booker bass, or I'll vary one of his basses, and, or maybe expand it or contract it. So, I mean, so I'm so fortunate to have these mentors. Next up, indie singer-songwriter Inara George, who has a lengthy career as a solo artist and in a variety of configurations. She made Christmas music on the album Harmony is Real with the Living Sisters, an acoustic group with Eleni Mandel, Alex Lilly, and Becky Stark. We talked briefly about that experience, but I'm more focused on George as one half of The Bird and the Bee, along with musical partner Greg Kirsten, who has also produced music by Foo Fighters, Paul McCartney, Kelly Clarkson, Marin Morris, Kendrick Lamar, and more. The Bird and the Bee has released a number of Christmas songs, including this year's Put Up the Lights album. It's a lovely album that borrows from a variety of musical sounds, from bossa nova to swinging London discotheque, and it's one of my favorite al uh, Christmas albums of the season, in part because their pop is right up my alley. We recently talked about making Put Up the Lights. Tell me about how Christmas music, uh, what you remember about Christmas music as a, as a part of your Christmases growing up. Um, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't come from a super religious family, but we do celebrate Christmas. And um, I remember my mom had particular albums that she loved. Um, and we would listen to them on the, on the day. And we, I definitely, we listened to like Nat King Cole. We listened to, um, to the Chieftains a lot. I remember she had this like Bell uh, Christmas record, but I mean, I always loved Christmas music. I feel like it's, um, it's it, uh, to me, it feels like it makes the season what it is. Um, you know, but I do remember like that thing of like when it starts to come in a little too soon. That's why our record came out in October and I was like, this is too early. But I guess with all these playlists, you kind of have to put it out earlier so that people, by the time Christmas comes, people know to put it on their playlist. But yeah, it, it's it's a little aggressive when, it, when they start playing it before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there's some amazing songs written about Christmas or just the holidays in general. Um, so I was excited to do this record. 
So I'm going to come back to that. But but since you mentioned um, putting it out in October, tell me about that conversation. Uh, like where you know who said this was a good idea? That it was a good idea to be out earlier. Um, I think it's just the way people do it now. I don't. I I I didn't really question it because I know like just in terms of getting the record into the like these streaming systems that you know if you do it too late and especially for us we're not like a huge band so it's nice to have it out there so that people start putting it on their playlists for christmas in a timely manner um i don't i've never put out well actually that's not true i have put out a christmas record um with the living sisters i do think that it was at least november when we put it out um if i recall that, that sounds about right different time it's a different time that was I don't know, eight years ago or something? Maybe maybe less. I don't remember. actually was going to ask what was you know compare the experience of making a christmas record with the living sisters versus making uh put up the lights with greg i just think with anything greg and i we have our own working relationship the way that we do stuff this is the first time greg and i have ever made a record that we're not in the same room together for the majority of the recording um so that was very new. The Living Sisters, we did it, you know, all together in a studio. Um, and Living Sisters, like, I think that that's what makes it, that is sort of the charm of it. And also, it's like we're four front girls all needing to make decisions. And it's like quirky and funny and, you know, and we have a really good time. And then we get into fights. And, um, and Greg and I, it's just a little bit simpler just because there's two of us and also we just have this working relationship and also we're we're achieving different things and we we have such clear roles that there's there's always been an ease to the way that we work together um yeah and i mean you know this was recording this was different because greg would send me tracks and then i would you know i rewrote two originals but then you know, he would send me tracks and then I would sing them in my closet and then send him all the stems of me singing. Um, it was the first time I've ever sung a record like this by myself, you know, like I essentially engineered it and, <laughs> and kind of, you know, I produced it by myself, the vocal part, um, which was fun. And then also kind of, you know, I mean, I think that's the fun part about being in the studio is you get to be with your friends and make music together. So, but I do think that the quarantine aspect and the, the kind of like the day-to-day -day kind of thing that the, the, the slogging of this time to have this little moment where I could go in and just do something that reminded me of who I was, you know, uh, or who I am, I guess. 
uh, aside from a mom and all that sort of stuff, it, it's, um, it was nice. It was a respite yeah. <laughs> from reality. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I think is really interesting about this time is, you know, on one hand, there's a real natural and understandable fascination and concern about musicians getting paid you know, since so many musicians are, you know, who rely on live mute, live gigs for, you know, for money are, you know, can't play. But this has been kind of one of my thoughts as well as that, you know, playing music is what you do, you know, and it's, you know, for, you know, so many musicians, it's, you know, it's essentially, it's, you know, who they are or, you know, their identity and sense of self is closely tied to their, you know, to themselves as musicians. And so I'd imagine that, playing and making music is just sort of a way to remind yourself of who you are and kind of do the, do the thing that gives you the most pride and joy. Yeah. I think it was, it's important. It was important. And I know left to my own devices, I wouldn't have done it. I think that I can, I can always prioritize other things ahead of my own creativity when, when it comes to my family and, the kids and what they need, but to have sort of this thing that I was working on with Greg and I, I had to like fulfill these obligations. So it, it was a night, it was a nice way for me to focus on that and be, and you know, when we had to like make it in time for Christmas. So, yeah. <laughs> so you had a deadline. <laughs> we had a deadline. Yeah. One of the, one of my favorite tracks on put up the lights is you and I at Christmas time which is one of your two originals. Yes. Where did that one come from? Um, well, Greg sent a track to me and then I wrote the, the, you know, the lyrics and melody over it. And I think lyrically, I just think I was trying to sort of capture this kind of quiet um, Christmas, you know, like that we're going to do the same things that we do every year, but it just might be you and me, you know, and that I think that was... It was, I, I, at that time, especially, I was finding it hard to write anything that didn't really like point to what was happening. And, and, and because it's Christmas, you want to make it feel nice. But I think if you listen to the lyrics, um, it's all about like, not, not, I mean, I guess that's what you want to say Christmas all the time is like, it's not about the gifts. It's not about, it's about, you know, being together. And I think I was trying to sort of reiterate that in the context of this crazy moment. I don't know if this is a function, I don't know if this is an aesthetic 
choice or if it's just a function of there only being the two of you. But it seems like like it's sort of an intimacy and a sort of a, a lovely sort of smallness is sort of seems very much a part of the bird and the bee sound to me. That uh, is that intentional or is that or do you or do you hear it too? I definitely hear it with the first record, for sure, when I listen back to that. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think that we, I mean, the thing, the, the music that we sort of were trying to emulate at the, in the beginning, and I think we still do, is just this, the, the, this thing where you can express a lot with not a lot of, you know, like a thickness of sound, I suppose. It's like to try to make the melody and the progression sort of be the, be the movement and then add things. I mean, I don't know if we do it intentionally, but I think we, it, I think we find that the, sim the simplest version sometimes is the best for us, you know? What were those records or what were those kind of markers that you used sort of as a sort of as an inspiration when you started i think we were thinking a lot about you know 60s pop and um and brazilian uh Chupacalia and that was kind of our that was our go-to but then you know we sometimes we listen to the clash and think this sounds great why does it sound so great and i think that's something that I miss sometimes in today's music. And I and I have to say, like, I don't listen to a lot of new music. I find that it's hard. Uh, I can't listen to music in the way that I used to. And I find it hard to listen to new music sort of peripherally. So I like to go to listen to the music that I, that I know really well, because then I can, I don't know. I, you know, it's like when your kids are turning off music in the middle you're just like screw it i'm not gonna sure <laughs> try anymore um so yeah and i think that the records that we were going to were these ones where like it says a lot with a little and i think that's kind of where we sort of sprung from mm -hmm. this is you have a was like five songs on this, or I think are our, our standards or our Christmas uh, covers. And then you've also done two albums, the album of Hall & Oates songs and an album of Van Halen songs. What is it about doing other people's music that appeals to you? Um, it's funny. We, uh, I, I mean, I think we started... When we first started playing together, just w without recording, we did a lot of covers. And I think that's just where we started. And I think it's this thing of um, figuring out how to choose music that we, we're not trying to do it better, but we're trying to do our own version. And what, and what, 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 what songs will we be successful with? And then I also think, the way that we came, the way that we thought about our band was that we were we borrowed a lot, and I think we were constantly listening to other sounds to try to figure out something that we could 
So I think it's, it was just the nature of our, of who we, who we are as a band. Like we came together, Greg and I, because we had a very, we seem to have a very similar aesthetic in terms of music. And I think it was kind of like the project sprung from this thing of, oh, I like that band and I like that band. And, and, you know, what if we could, what if, and then I think it just happened that when we made music together, we would kind of, you know, seek out other sounds or songs that we admired. Um, and yeah, and so the Hollow thing kind of came out of like that thing of let's make music instead of touring. And we were so spent of writing. So we're like, oh, let's just do a cover record. And we, we decided on Hollow Notes. And then that became a thing. And people kept asking, when are you going to do the next one? Because we had sort of left it open by saying it was a volume one. Right. And then we enjoyed it so much. And I think it informed our, la our last length record of originals and then you know i'm curious to see how it'll inform the, the van halen how it, it'll inform our next batch it's a really cool study of music of, of, of writing of you know i would imagine could you want to explain that because i was trying to think about when i heard the van halen about as a woman you moving in and having to listen to and think about and process David Lee Roth lyrics and trying to and to move into you know bluntly such a male attitude and yeah. uh and and so how you processed thinking about um about Van Halen and and, and trying to trying to find your space in that music it's kind of interesting because we decided to do this record and then like I think as it was coming out or while we were recording it, like the Me Too movement was happening. So it was kind of a, it was interesting because, you know, not to say that I don't, that I, I didn't think of, of it before, but I, you know, you start to kind of unpack, I guess that's like a word that people like, it's like, but you start to unpack like, who you are as a woman and your relationship to these bands that definitely did not consider females in the way that I think today it would be, it would be considered, you know, uh, yeah. It, it, so I think that, that I, I was approaching David Lee Roth's lyrics. And the thing that I act with that kind of sensibility, like, oh, okay. I have to think about like, this is a guy that did like, you know, California Girls and the like some of the, I have to say the Van Halen videos are much more questionable than the lyrics. Cause um, the lyrics, I didn't really find anything that I found uh, um, offensive. I actually found that it seemed to me that he loved, he loves women, you know, <laughs> he loves and respects women. He might be kind of body about talking about them, but I never found there was anything that I was like, Oh God, you know? Right. Um, but, but the mentality of that time where you could make a record that make a video that, that today is completely, unacceptable right so it's like a different time but but you know like jamie's crying to me is like a very sweet song that is 
is really discussing that thing of a, a girl who wants something more and, and it seems has the self-respect to, to, to want that and, and, and not settle for anything less. That was my interpretation of that song, which I think is, a, it's a great message for a girl. Part of the fun of doing records like that, um, just seeing what you can do with these familiar songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, and I think we try to choose carefully. We want to choose. We choose. We choose music that we think doesn't necessarily get as much like credibility um, that we think it deserves. In terms, and not to say like the bands we choose are huge. You know, sure. tons of. But it's like critically have not always been, you know, lauded as these, you know, I don't know, exceptional, you know, it's like pop music or, you know, whatever. Rock right, rock. sure. So we choose something like that. That has been our a past. And then we also choose something that we feel like we're never going to do it better, but we're going to do it our own way. And it won't really, it won't really resemble the original in a way where we're going to compare. It's going to be comparison. Right. And then, um, yeah. And then just something we love. So, uh, uh, I don't even remember what, what the question was, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, we, we just try to do something that we think is fun. And then also, yeah, like how are, how are we going to approach this in our voice? Right. So when you move into Christmas songs, like particularly now I know like you brought in Dave Grohl plays on Little Drummer Boy. Little Drummer Boy is another song, not as tedious as uh, 12 songs, but Little Drummer Boy with a lot of rumpa-pum-pums can... Can can make it can wear you out. How did, how did you approach, or or how did y'all approach that song, and why bring in Dave Grohl? Well, I think you know, Greg. That was Greg. I mean, I think Greg kind of had. I think it's it is an amazing song to um, showcase a drummer, <laughs> and like one of the most famous drummers of all time. You know, or of our of our sure. generation. Um, you know, we have a relationship with Dave and Dave's a fan of our band and he's played with us and um, he's always game and he's like a real musician's musician. Like he wants to come, he wants to play. He doesn't care, you know, if anything's perfect, like he's sort of punk rock and he, I don't know. It's just always fun to have him. 
play with us. He's just a good guy and a good energy and, um, and not fussy at all, just like shows up and plays, you know? Um, and, and so I think, you know, Greg was like, let's do little drummer boy with Dave Grohl. And I was like, great. <laughs> I mean, I think that was really just it. It was like, and playing like a real rock drum, um, like showcasing the drums, like right. this song is going to be about Dave. So yeah. for something very different. Jamie Hilston released two EPs this Christmas season under the name The Murderers. The Murderers Slay Christmas and The Murderers Slay Some More. Both adapt Christmas classics for punk rock fans. And Jamie's personal story, as well as his take on Christmas music and punk, are really interesting. Here we go then with Jamie Hilston and The Murderers on 12 Songs. So to start, what's the story behind Murderers Slay Christmas? Murderers Slay Christmas uh, is a punk Christmas album. And I don't know really much what to say about it. The story that we're going with is that we are a band from the North Pole. (laughs) Uh, We are former members of three different prominent uh, underground uh, North Pole scene bands. The Dead Kringles, um... Prancid and Slayer, spelled ah, with ah, ah. E-I-G-H-E-R. And uh, we put together a punk record to uh, to put to tape our culture, our our uh, our long-held <laughs> underground punk North Pole culture. Excellent. Ah, ah, ah. How long did it come up with that story? Uh, Oh, man, it's, you know, it kind of came together pretty naturally, I got to say. So, so you, how did you, you had the idea, uh, was this your idea of doing this? Um, Or is this you and friends had this idea or? Well, it was, I was on a tour last year. I live in Poland right now. Okay. Uh, And, and last year I was on a, on a tour in Poland, kind of like this review um, you know, a whole bunch of kind of 
pretty well-known Polish singers. And I was just a guitarist in that tour and it was a Christmas tour. So every artist would come up and sing one or two songs and I was in the backing band. And uh, we were doing Oh Holy Night. And for some reason it came to my mind that the song could be done punk. And if you just switch the six, eight to a four, four, but you do it fast, you can kind of, you can kind of pull it off. And then I made a quick demo of it and I loved it so much that I just tried another one. I think the next one I did was God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And I liked that too. And then it just kept rolling, kept making demo after demo. Then I finally took it to musician friends and then we actually played it in the studio. What, what challenges did you, what challenge happens to the song or what was the challenge of turning a holy night from six eight to four four. Um, the problem was in that particular song is that the verse worked in that time signature and then the chorus didn't work, huh. and then I had to think of a solution for that. And the solution, the solution that came to me was to speed up the chorus twice as fast, and then suddenly it did fit in, and then it did sound like kind of a legit punk song. Right. And in general, that's the big challenge is to make the song still sound like Christmas songs, but also sound like legit punk songs that it doesn't sound like forced. Like I want these songs to sound like they could have been written by a punk band. project were you doing it with affection toward christmas music or is this way of a way of taking the piss out of christmas no, very much with affection for christmas um i i'm canadian i have a really complicated story i'm canadian i was born there i moved to israel when i was four years old and i actually grew up on a street called bethlehem road in jerusalem that it's called bethlehem road because if you follow it about four or five miles you will actually reach Bethlehem. so i but i grew up as a canadian in israel and while christmas wasn't really part of society in israel but christmas was part of my home and it was by far my favorite time of the year i would feel this christmas spirit i love the music my mom is a musician so we grew up on the on good stuff and i just i love christmas i love christmas music so i, I i'm not taking the this okay what was your relationship to Christmas music growing up, especially in, I mean, because you, I would imagine that for the most part, I mean, you would hear music before you were four, but I also, if you're like me, there's not much I remember from before I was four. So most of any music I, I remember, I remember from older than that. So Yeah, but we had, but we did listen to it after I was four. After we moved to Israel, we still celebrated Christmas. And my mom, I think, she had a few Christmas albums, but she had one cassette that she recorded off the radio uh, in Toronto. Uh, 
KFRB 1010, something like that. And every year they have a great Christmas show and she just recorded it once. And we would hear that every year. And in retrospect, I think it was, you know, the best renditions of most of these songs, the good Andy Williams and Sinatra versions. And I would just hear it every single year and I would just love it. Now, what's your relationship to Christmas songs by like Andy Williams and Perry Como? Well, I like that. I, the Perry Como, I never really wasn't part of our family, but Andy Williams, Sinatra, um, Dean Martin. You know, I am a, I am a little tired of it to be <laughs> honest. Like I, it, it's wonderful. I wouldn't, I would never knock it, but the, I guess there's only so many times you get to a certain age and you don't want to hear the same versions of it. So I guess I am trying to like kind of re-enjoy the songs by making my own versions. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool approach to it. Part of the reason I ask is, like, I think about, you know, in my case, when I went in, you know, I love those songs. And then when I had teenage years, mm-hmm. those songs represented mom and dad's culture and represented like old traditional show business and sort of everything that, you know, for me, sort of 70s and 80s era punk sort of confronted. And so there's a point where that was just sort of old music yeah. and it was dad's yeah, music. And I mean, it took, and it took time for me to find my, to sort of find a, a new relationship with it. And of course, and now I, I, I you know, I love those songs just fine. But I also wonder if you kind of went through a period where that was, yeah, where you know, what's that tired old people shit? Yeah, well, no, I really like I spent you know from age four until about 17, 18 in Israel. So all those times, I only had these songs at home, and it, I didn't hear it at the mall. I didn't hear them on commercials. I only heard them out of our stereo. So they never had that kind of kind of gross uh, commercial uh, connotation for me. So I guess it was never really a problem. But I will say that when I did move to Canada at 17, I worked at a mall, and that's when I <laughs> hated Christmas. And it was uh, like, you know, in Canada, you know, Thanksgiving is in October. So they start playing Christmas music after uh, Halloween. Ah, so ah, November first, ah, so two months of that, and yeah, it really. I, so to be honest, yeah, Christmas music did kind of die for me for a few years, yeah. but I don't live in Canada anymore, so I, uh, so I don't get too much of it. I was about to ask. So what is, what's your exposure to Christmas music like in Poland? Um, well, they have totally different songs. They only share one song. Uh, they share uh, "Silent Night." And that's because that's a German song. Right. So every other song of ours, they do not have. And every song of theirs, we do not have. And they have great songs. So that's actually been pretty cool. Like I spend a lot of, I I live half in Poland, half in Israel. I I went back to Israel. And and when I do spend Christmas in Poland, it's very cool because I actually had to learn. I'm the only person who plays an instrument in my wife's side of the family, or at least the only one who actively plays still. So I had to learn how to play all the Polish songs, and they're great. Oh, how interesting. Mm-hmm. Do I run into this when I hear music, uh, Christmas music from other cultures. 
-hmm. And there are times where I can hear some of the signifiers that tell us it's a Christmas Mm -hmm. song. Totally. But but in others, I really don't. Like, I find Mm -hmm. as much as I like uh, Latin Christmas music, uh-huh. At the same time, a yeah, lot yeah, of it yeah, just yeah. sounds like music. I don't hear. I, yeah. don't, I don't hear the signifiers. Can you hear? Like, which of our uh, sort of signifiers or tropes do uh-huh. uh, does, does Polish music borrow to be able to tell us this is mm-hmm. you know, this is Christmas? I don't know exactly what the terms are for uh, for the I don't know the modes or or anything like that. But there are some sounds that I recognize. So take green sleeves there are polish songs that sound like green sleeves i guess they use the similar the similar chord progressions and also they have that minor sixth and major sixth uh interchangeability so there's that particular one and then there's a couple other uh what do you call them a couple other motifs like da, 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 da. they have a melody that's almost like that but it's not that uh-huh. angels we have heard on high sure like you are, you're sure they're singing that song. So they're definitely the cultures are borrowing from each other, but totally taking it in other directions. But there's for sure a sound to Christmas that is kind of cross Northern Europe, I guess. Do do you find like the is are there places where you can where you can hear White Christmas? Does, oh, is, for sure. Uh, I would say I would say the mall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's some songs. I they probably know the. Uh, the more, um, yeah, what do you call it? Vaudeville or whatever it is. The more Rat Pack sure. style Christmas stuff. They would know that more than than the English hymns. Sure, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's I guess one of the things that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by this is that idea that there's this body of music that not only does everyone it's, it Christmas music might be the only music that everybody in America still knows. But not only mm-hmm. that, but people around the world. White Christmas, mm-hmm. white Christmas totally. travels. White pre- play- Christmas, everybody knows for sure. Yeah. So one thing I was thinking about as you were talking there was, you know, and in some ways, just sort of how sort of you know musical your approach to punk is. I was wondering what punk means to you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a hard question. Because in a sense, it's it's just a genre of music. But it's a. But what is, what makes punk? How to describe? The one thing that I would say is the, the most important part of punk is just dissonance and, and imperfection and especially in the singing, it can't be perfect. It can't be perfectly in tune. Um, how to get the right amount of, you know, of out of tuneness without going overboard. I don't know. No, I got to think about this question. I guess punk to me just means fun and forget about anything else. It's, it's playing it as Fast because it's fun to play it that way. Playing loud because it's fun to play it that way. It feels the best. It gets everybody into it. It's people singing along. But I don't know. It's hard to describe punk. Yeah, it's really hard to. That's that's okay. That's kind of what I was interested in. Is I think about 
that on what that for me, say you know I was sort of late seventies era punk, mm-hmm. and and partly because it didn't exist before that moment, mm-hmm. that it sort of existed immediately, sort of as a confrontation to the culture, both mainstream mm-hmm. culture, mainstream musical culture, as well as just sort of the culture at large, and so. You know, it was for a space mm-hmm. of about four years, just this sort of living, breathing, spitting middle finger to the rest of the world. Yeah. And but I realize, by the difference in our ages, there's a good chance that you have never known a, lo- a world that did not have m- punk music in it. You may not have always known it, but it was always mm-hmm. there. And for so I sure. wonder how that difference affects affects the way you know, punk, punk occurs to you? Does it occur to you as a music or as an idea or as an attitude or? Well, I remember when I first discovered punk music and it's like a lot of people my age, it was just, it was when Green Day came out because I, growing up in Israel, we got a lot of Seattle music and I hear all the time about how Kurt Cobain was reacting to, uh, to glam rock and this kind of like overly theatrical and, I don't know, if, I don't know what it was, but he, he didn't like uh, glam rock, and also I don't like glam glam rock, and I do love Nirvana, but listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and, and Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins for about three four years, there's only so much of that heaviness that you can take, and then when Green Day came along into that scene, then my ears did perk up, and I said, oh, here's a band that's having fun, here's a band that is not serious, it's not trying to be deep, it's not really trying anything, it feels like. And as soon as I heard that, I slowly started only listening to to punk music because it was so much more escapist than grunge. Grunge was so like, let's get into our thoughts and our despair. And there's only so much of that you can take and punk is just making fun of everything and just everything is light. And I don't know how that relates to Christmas, but I think it does. Like that there's, when you bring punk rock to Christmas, it does just like take it out of that serious place and it can help you remember that it is fun. Yeah. Think about a song like Carol of the Bells, which is Mm -hmm. just, it screams serious. (laughs) Yeah. How did you go about making that? And also, and also it seems like a, a, a musical challenge. As, as someone oh, who doesn't play an instrument. So yeah, yeah. tell me about trying to translate that into uh, yeah. punk. Well, one thing that helped for sure in making that one not too serious is that it has some really funny lyrics. It's It's got <laughs> ding dongy dong, that is their song. <laughs> and, when I st- and I was experimenting with it and trying to scream those lyrics and it was funny. It was funny to yeah. scream ding dongy dong. So that already was a, a place to start where it felt like, that this can be funny and that's important all the songs to me had to be a little bit funny um and as far as the musical side of it yeah it's in it's three four so it's hard to play punk rock in three four but in metal there is a lot of three four that is kind of double so i don't know i as soon as i i thought of that idea of making it that beat um the rest was just, you know, trying, where do you build tension? Where do you release the tension? And how can we put in a little joke here and there, a little metal riff that's funny?
Finally, I had a great talk with Matt Munoz of Mento Buru, a Latin ska band from East Bakersfield, California, who released an East Bakersfield Christmas this year. I really enjoyed talking to Matt, and we shared some geeking out time over songs and artists. I look forward to running more of my talk with Matt next year, but we talked specifically about one of the songs they recorded, Donde Esta Santa Claus, originally recorded by Augie Rios. I had some questions about the song, so we broke it down. Here's my conversation with Matt on 12 Songs. So, first off, tell me the story of East Bakersfield Christmas. Okay, so East Bakersfield Christmas is, well, I'm you're, you're listening to me live from East Bakersfield, California, and uh, the whole idea for the record was to just kind of shine a positive light on our section of Bakersfield. So, you know, so often Bakersfield is associated with the Bakersfield sound, of course, with Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, uh, um, a Red Simpson, et cetera. And, you know, and they're all great. Uh, but, you know, there's another side to Bakersfield. You know, there's the there's the soulful brown brown side of town. <laughs> and so. We all live over here. This is where the band rehearses. And so we wanted the album to, to reflect that. Give some light. Give some love to East Bakersfield. I have to ask, what does Mento Buru mean? Mento Buru. Okay. Yeah, Mento Buru are two types of uh, Jamaican folk music styles. So the Mento Calypso style and the Buru drumming are both very early, um, very indigenous sounds to Jamaica, Africa. And together, they're kind of like the rhythmic foundations of what would become reggae and ska. And so, although we are not a traditional mento or uh, buru band in any of the musical sense, uh, the the sound that we started, because we started out as a reggae band, so we were just trying to be down, you know, as a lot of bands do. And then as the sound starts to uh, evolve, you still have the name. So thanks for asking, because a lot of people don't ask. They just assume, oh, it's mento buru or mento. You know, right, right. It's like we want the same amount of, of uh, syllables as some of our favorite bands. Oingo Boingo, Mento Buru. There you go. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what are your memories of oh, Christmas man. music? I love this because I checked out the website and I list. I just listened to the episode with the guy from the Flaming Lips. It was a fantastic episode, by the way. Um, my my most fondest memories, earliest memories of Christmas music is my mother had this album, which was the Ramsey Lewis Sounds of Christmas. And every Christmas Eve, <laughs> she put that record on and she must have bought it when it first came out. So by the time I was growing up, it had all the pops and the hisses. And then you just hear that that cool, you know, Ramsey Lewis Sounds of Christmas, the volume one. And it would just play over and over and over. And uh, I loved it. That was just kind of like the record that would just go flip back and forth, back and forth, you know. His version of Here Comes Santa Claus on that is just a knockout. That is like exactly what I want from Ramsey Lewis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What a, what a, it's a classic album. I got to get another copy of it because I, there for a while, that, that record, when my parents passed away, the, the album would kind of travel from family. I have five sisters. 
and one brother, and I'm the youngest. So that record would kind of travel. Someone would come over. I'd go look for it this Christmas. Oh, it's gone. I'd have to call on my siblings. Oh, so-and-so has it. I'd have to wait for it to come back. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to buy another one. I want to hear that one. I want to hear all the pops and the skips in the exact places that I remember growing up. We're not going to fix them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. I was that uh, a couple of seasons ago, I talked with a, uh, with a, a, a guy in a local indie rock band, Joe Adrania from a band called the junior league. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about, there was one album and it was a compilation from Grant's department store in New Jersey. And that, that record was the sound of that was Christmas dinner. Yep. At a Christmas dinner, this record went on. You know, he knew, you know, and had like that kind of, that kind of like, I know where the skips are. <laughs> like, I know, you know, every song in the right sequence. And he at one point found a copy and he loved it, but it wasn't his parents' copy. And that when he finally yeah. got a chance, he finally like boosted the parents' version, a uh, copy of the record, because they, you know, it didn't mean as much to them as it did to him. Yeah, and um, so it was. Uh, so anyway, so we have I've had that conversation a few times yeah. about how just a, how important not just that thing was to Christmas, uh, but the how how that specific object mm -hmm. was crucial. Oh yeah, and then I eventually got it transferred. I had a DJ friend who had transferred it the vinyl on because it hadn't been reissued yet, and uh, so I just wanted that same sound onto CD. So then I could just take it, take it everywhere with me, and I didn't have to worry about it if I was ever going to find the vinyl copy because I would, I would get a turntable and then I would not have one, you know. And I had some crap. I probably have a, a nice Pioneer one now, but there for for years I didn't have one, so I had to rely on on getting the CD. And I didn't want to get a reissue because it would always have too many uh, alternate takes. A lot of times those those reissues have that. And I'm like, you know, the take that they decided on originally was the take that. Well, I'll always want to listen to. <laughs> you know, it's funny when they started trying to pad out CDs uh, reissues yeah. by adding extra tracks. I almost always stopped when the album was over. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, later on, separately, I might listen to those tracks to see what they were. But you know, I never. I, I remember. I guess what was it? Uh, oh, um, God only. Um, Pet sound. Mm -hmm. When they when it was reissued, yeah. they added like three songs. Like those three songs don't go. Caroline No was the end of that record. Yeah. And so I, you know, I I stopped at that point. And um, I do. By the way, I do have the Ramsey Lewis uh, Sounds of Christmas on CD without any extra tracks. Oh, wow. So thankfully I have. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> but but I also I don't have but I don't have a side break which I which I. I miss. I, I love side breaks on albums. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's and then we'd go to midnight mass, then we'd come back, and then it would you know we're, we'd be up to like three, four in the morning, and then that record would just go on over and over and over and over again. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I loved it. Oh, yeah. So, so many fun memories, and of course, but the things that I really liked about Christmas music after you know when I started getting older was I loved all the novelty songs. I loved the Spike Jones, all the stuff that you grew up, all the Doctor Demento. You know, Cheech and Chong, Santa Claus and his old lady and, uh, you know, all the Christmas music. I love it. You know, and that was kind of like the, the whole thing with putting this record together. Mamacita.
What's your favorite? Or do you have a favorite? Uh, a favorite Christmas song? Like a, No, favorite uh, novelty. Oh, yeah, favorite novelty. novelty. Well, song. I really like the Don't Stop Santa Claus, you know, the Augie, Little Augie Rios. Mm-hmm. You know, that became a favorite because, you know, here I am, a Latino over here in Southern California. I mean, in uh, Central California. And we, you know, we're so used to, to hearing all the American jazz records and all that stuff. And you know, we, get to, we get to hear a little something. I'm like, is that like, is that like a... Is it Spike Jones impersonating a Latino kid? You know, <laughs> you know, because he was known to impersonate everybody. I was like, no, it's actually like you know, it's actually a little kid. So that'd be kind of a kind of a, kind of a little bit of a little mild obsession of what, what was this song? Where did this song come from? And who was Augie Rios? What did you learn? Well, I the only thing I was able to find out about Augie Rios was that he was a child entertainer. He was a, a Puerto Rican kid from New York. Um, the song was written by, um, probably, you know, some, some, some songwriting house, you know, in New York, you know, they're just pumping out and they're like, let's get this, let's get this Puerto Rican kid to come out here and sing, uh, you know, uh, don't install Santa Claus, you know, he's, you know, kid from Hell's Kitchen or something like that. Uh, fast forward, there's just a gap of Augie Rios had a short career in Hollywood. He would portray like the gang member, kind of like a West Side Story scenario and he had a doo-wop group called Augie Rios and uh and the and the something you know had a kind of one of those cool doo-wop names and then that's it then he just kind of disappears there's no there's nothing else I, I I've kind of done research I had a, a friend who works at the LA Times and I said is there anything that you can find out for me he's all well there's no obit there is one other Augie Rios and he was a famous football player I think it was like a college hall of famer and he since passed away I think he may have passed away in 2011, but the Augie Rios that is associated with the record that recorded and was in Hollywood, I can't find any information. Yeah, I I was actually looking this up because I was going to ask you about the song, but uh, yeah, he was 12 when he recorded it, and that and I was just checking because I was looking before I before I interviewed you. The writers are George Schenk, Rod Parker, and Al Grenier. Yeah, and. <laughs> They sound like my three. It like my uncles, you know. No. Yeah, <laughs> my three uncles. It's like a law firm. Yeah, sounds like a law firm. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because one of the things, because I love the song, but I've always kind of been unsure how I should feel about the song uh-huh. because, obviously, written by Shank Parker and Grenier, that the odds are none of them are people of color. Yeah, and so, and I was. You know, so I was trying to decide how much of that, I mean, it, it, it was clearly about as enlightened as I could expect Shank Parker and Grenier to be in 1958. Yeah. But at the same time, it works in really broad stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was kind of, so, you know, I saw part of me was kind of wondered about how this landed with, you know, in, uh, in Latino ears. Yeah. Well, it- like was, you know, Go ahead. Oh, where no, no, where no, are no, you with going, it? Or talk it through. Anyway, so I just was on just trying to decide: is this was this in, you know insensitive, or kind of where you know where should I be with it? Um, am I a, am I embracing it? Basically, embracing stereotypes in a problematic way. So so anyway, so I was trying to sort through how do I think about yeah. this? Yeah, oh, I, you know what, I can totally understand the concerns, especially now because things are a little bit more sensitive nowadays. But, you know, when you think about those tunes and you think about that era, um, you know, it's like 
think about Richie Valens, you know, and, and, you know, it, it, every so many years you have like a, a person of Latino or Hispanic descent that actually got an opportunity to kind of like have their name up in lights or have a hit, hit song or something like that. But, you know, I would, you just have to look at the, the history of, of kind of like those songwriting houses that how they were just churning out tunes. And I'd like to know more about like, well, how were you inspired? Because like, I'm sure like you are, you know, we, we love to know the, the really deep, deep dive history of how these kind of these songs have come about. And uh, that was, that's what it is. I mean, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel guilty about digging it or singing the same way because, you know, you know, Latino culture is everywhere. And, if it's if it's uh i think the way it's delivered is delivered very sincerely and very affectionately it's very cute and so it's not done like uh in a comedic way kind of like a chich and chong you know so you know they're joking around because they're comedians but this is little latino kid and and just imagine being a latino kid in 1958 and hearing that song and then you kind of hear yourself in the song the little voice I don't think, you know, Augie Rios was obviously not impersonating anybody. That's that's the way he sounded. You know, he's a little Puerto sure. Rican kid in, in, uh, in the East Coast, I assume. And so that's the way he sounded. Yeah, and and it was very clearly playing to a persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in his case, because the flip side is uh, old fatso. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I should make sure all of it is right in the middle of 1958. Yeah. Uh, you a sense of humor. But nonetheless, that, uh, but it wasn't, but I saw like, okay, this is, and I saw, you know, when I first heard it, I saw pictures of Augie Rios. I'm like, okay, he is, you know, he's, you know, he's a young, young brown man. So, or young brown, uh, brown boy. And so, (laughs) all right, that's cool. Um, So at least to the extent that he got paid something. Yeah. You know, at least he got paid. And at least it wasn't, it wasn't some, it wasn't a white person putting on a brown accent yeah. to sing the song. <laughs> and which there's plenty of precedent yeah. for. I, I have to say one of one of my early favorite Christmas songs was a song um, called I Just Go Nuts at Christmas yeah. by Yorgi Yorgi by Yogi Yorgison, uh-huh. who was actually a comedian, I think his name was Harry Stewart. And he this is around forty eight or forty nine and he would put on a Swedish accent. Yep. And to sing, and you know, and I mean, I'm not so worried about how the Swedes are and aren't portrayed. I'm, I suppose that's something I should probably be more concerned with. <laughs> but it's not like there's a you know, Yogi Jorgensen and Harry Stewart have got a made a lot of inroads in affecting the way we think about the Swedes, yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, but I was, but I even then I was aware that's not him, yeah, and that this is somebody, and that part of the part of what's funny here is this guy trying to sing like he's Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at least when I heard Donde Esta Santa Claus, I was like, okay, this is, you know, that this is a young, I should say Puerto Rican. And so I'm not hearing somebody clowning. Yeah, no. Um, or cl- he's not clowning on being a Latino. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, he, if, if Augie Rios, you know, maybe if he had written the song himself, he was still going to sound like that. You know, he's going to say yes. mamacita. You know, that's the way we say, you know, you, if you're Hispanic, Latino, whatever you claim, you say mamacita is universal. It's your mom, you know, and your papacito, your, your, your dad, you know, papi, papa, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. So, you know, that's, that's the way you sound. It's like, even when I, when I sing the song, if you're going to say it right, I was, can't say 
Donde Santa Claus, you know, I have to, I mean, I'm, I'm a Chicano guy, so that's the way I sound. Donde está Santa sure. Claus, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Where did you on the uh, on the EP you finish with a with a song sung entirely in Spanish? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where did the Span the all Spanish lyric come from? That came from there's a Mexican comedian by the name of Chabelo, and he was really big. He's still around. I think he's like 81, 82, um, and he would always show up on those Mexican crazy Mexican variety shows on the weekends that my parents used to watch. And he's this guy, he's kind of, he's not a dwarf, but he's just kind of like a, he's just a really short, little tiny Mexican man. <laughs> and he's a comedian and he was known for doing these skits with a baby voice. And so he would come out dressed down like, in, like, a, like a school, schoolboy outfit or, you know, like a onesie um, pajamas around the holidays. And he had this real kind of like kitty voice. And he was, vamos a hablar en español, you know, ¿dónde está Santa Claus? And he did a version of it. And uh, and I was like, well, I think we should do it. But I want, I need to make sure that the translation is correct. And I said, well, as long as I get his translation verbatim, I'm safe. Because if there's one thing about Latinos, when they hear something sung in Spanish, is there's so many dialects, you're bound to get picked apart. So I was like, well, if you have a problem with my translation, Take it out with Chabelo. He's still alive. You can go argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard from anybody? Oh, no. no. You know what? I've been hoping to hear from Augie Rios. I, I put out some little <laughs> APBs on Instagram. Has anybody seen Augie? Does anybody find anything? And I'm like, I don't know. So, Augie, if you're listening now, please. There's many ways to find us, you know. <laughs> yes. Either one of us. Yes. Either one. I will. I would... Talk to Augie Rios all day. Oh, oh absolutely. Man. I would love that. Oh, yeah. There's, there are two or three who I'm looking for. Actually, I should, this is a good APB moment because I am trying to get Curtis Blow. Oh, yeah. Every year I, every year I send Curtis Blow because Christmas wrapping kills. And, and I didn't even realize Christmas wrapping precedes the breaks. Yeah. yeah. The Christmas wrapping put Curtis Blow on the map before the breaks did. So I would love to talk to Curtis, uh, Curtis Blow. And there's also... There is a great uh, Christmas album, um, the um, Quad City DJs. Mm, wow, uh, yeah. Ha have a really good one. And on it, there's a song, Christmas Blues by Big Time. Uh -huh. Time spelled T-Y-M-E. And it's a song that actually has found, sort of found a life in R&B stations, especially along the coast. And um, 
and I can't find anything. He's somebody with a name like Big Time. It's almost impossible to get to to find any information about him. But the song is amazing, and so I am. Uh, I've re- I've written to the one original member uh-huh. of Quad City DJs to see if he can tell me anything about uh, about Big Time, but I haven't got an answer. Oh back wow, yet, so. it could be them. They would just use those names to get multiple credits. You know, I would take that too. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love that record. Uh, so. <laughs> oh yeah, well, speaking of like the, those those the hip hop and uh, hip hop. Christmas albums that were out in the nineties. Cause I would, I would work in the, like the local music plus blockbuster music uh, retail stores for years. And there was that time period when there were a lot of those kind of uh, hip hop gangster rap Christmas albums, you know, death row Christmas, the quad city DJs, um, the Luke uh, Skywalker, Luke two live crew Christmas <laughs> album, you know um, you know, they were, and they were out there. It was around the time of the, the, the time that the Mariah Carey album came out and just kind of wiped everybody out, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yo sé que debo estar dormido, pero así no lo puedo ver. Mejor arrele la ventana. Thanks to George Winston, Inara George, Jamie Hilston, and Matt Munoz of Mento Buru. We'll hear more from all of them in 2021. And thanks to AF the Naysayer for our theme music. Thanks to you for listening. If you haven't subscribed, I hope you'll do so wherever you get your podcasts. If you can leave a five-star review at Apple, that helps others find 12 songs. To all of you, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. I'm taking a week off, so Happy New Year, too. I'm giving the last word this week to the murderers and their version of it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Talk to you in 2021.